Well, I invite you to turn with me once again, if you would, uh, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. Here we are this morning, gathered on the first day of the week. We couldn't be a more diverse group of people in age and background. How did this community, how did this people come to be? And what are we supposed to be about as a people? More than just singing songs, more than just sipping coffee with one another, what is the church? See, these are some of the questions that we have been asking ourselves, that God's Word has been asking us. And God's Word has given us answers as we have walked through this early history of the church over the past months. I'm going to have to say years here pretty soon, but it's still months, I believe. And as we have made our way through the book of Acts these past months, from a, uh, we've come from a relatively small gathering of believers in the city of Jerusalem in chapter 2, to now dozens of churches dotting the landscape of Asia Minor, all the way from Jerusalem to the city of Athens, Greece. I mean, the growth of the church, the growth of this way of Jesus, we'll call it, has truly been remarkable. And then we're going to come to a point, we're going to come to an end of this study of the early history of the church. We know that the amazing growth of the church doesn't let up, but it brings us to this very day, to this very place. God is building His church. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. These are promises that we have been reminded of. These are promises that are ours and that are for our children. This morning, Luke continues in his recounting of the history of the early church with another dramatic account. One that, just like last week, encourages us and instructs us in the way of the Gospel. A passage begins, just so I can introduce and set the scene a bit, our passage begins this morning with a recounting of Paul's various travels, where he's going, where he's ending up, and then the story comes back to Ephesus, to this ancient city where we were last week, and one that Paul spent considerable time ministering in. And in fact, at the events... Uh, We're about to read, Paul is again returned to Ephesus. And so listen as I read. You can follow along in your inserts, or you can follow along in your Bibles. Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, You know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, 
But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made without hands, excuse me, made with hands, are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him to vent, not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours, they call cried out in one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Hobbies and Hollywood, sports and status, power, possessions, and pleasure, Comfort and control and Artemis of the Ephesians. Sure, it's pretty obvious that one of those in that list stands out from the rest. But they do all belong, I think, in the same category. Because although times have changed, human hearts and the institutions that we create haven't. And therefore, we really aren't that much different than the people who gathered in the theater in Ephesus. As we walk through Acts chapter 19, at least this latter half of Acts chapter 19, I want to direct your hearts and minds to two truths that I want us to meditate on for a few moments. And the first one is this. The way of Jesus dethrones all 
idols. The way of Jesus dethrones all idols. So we come to this passage this morning. In a sense, it's very familiar to us, those of us who have been all along this journey of the book of Acts. Because once again, God's people are facing opposition. One thing that's different though, and unfamiliar to us, is that the opposition that God's people are facing here in Ephesus is not in response to a sermon. It's not in response to a statement that Paul made. It's not in response to a series of dramatic conversions or a scandalous healing. Rather, the uprising that we see here in chapter 19 is the effects, the increasingly pervasive effects of the Gospel. Of those who are following the way. Now the way as Luke describes it is simply the way of Jesus. It was often called that in the ancient world, in the ancient church. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of love. And it's the way that is beginning to change the world. And that change is highlighted for us right here in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus. As we've talked about before, the city of Ephesus was a strategic port in the ancient world. And it not only boasted this economic vitality through its trade, but it was also the center of a religious following. The city of Ephesus was itself a religious destination because, as I think I've mentioned before, Ephesus was the home to the temple Artemis, the temple of Artemis, the Greek goddess, worshipped as the mother goddess of all the goddesses in Asia Minor. And her position as a Greek goddess in the religious pluralism of that day was clear, and her temple, the place where people came to worship her, made that point clear. I've never been to that part of the world. Maybe some of you have uh, been to Greece, Italy, those areas. But no doubt some of you, maybe all of you, can bring to mind a mental image of the Parthenon. Parthenon is kind of this iconic temple. It was actually uh, the temple that was built to Athena, the patron saint of Athens, years and years ago. And its ruins still stand high on the hill, a hilltop there in the city of Athens. Well, I bring up that mental image in your mind because the temple of Artemis was four times the size of the Parthenon. It rose 60 feet in height. 127 columns surrounded it. It was enormous. It was beautiful. And its impressive size and impressive architecture made it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and the focal point of Ephesian pride, identity, and economy. All people from all over the Roman Empire would come to Ephesus for Artemis of the Ephesians and for her temple. And so Demetrius, this man that we meet, Demetrius the silversmith, he represents Ephesus well because Demetrius has built his whole livelihood 
on making and selling little shrines of Artemis. Little souvenirs with religious significance for the faraway traveler. And in this context comes Paul. Into this context comes the Gospel. Now it would have been okay, like it is okay today, if Paul would have just kept his religious views to himself. But the problem is that the nature of the way, the nature of following Jesus, demands that we not keep it to ourselves. Because the way of Jesus dethrones idols. And so Paul comes, and much like he did in the city of Athens back in chapter 17, he says stuff like this, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. No wonder Demetrius wants Paul out of his city. Because the more that listen to Paul, the more that are gripped by the Gospel, the less Demetrius' business thrives. And it reminded me of a trip that I took with my wife years and years ago. We went to Paris. And I couldn't help but thinking about my little Eiffel Tower on my keychain. That, thing that thing's old. That thing's like 17 years old. My little Eiffel Tower. And I thought about the fact, what if, what if suddenly the city council of Paris decided to tear down the Eiffel Tower? Now, I know it has no religious significance, but what would that do to the vendor at the base of the Eiffel Tower that sold me that little keychain? It would destroy him. And not only would all of Paris be up in arms, you're removing our identity, but all of France would be up in arms. And it doesn't even have any religious significance. Well, Demetrius, he successfully gets the silversmith union of sorts involved. And he brings together all those who are religiously motivated. They could care less about his business, but they they want the religion to continue. And he, he gets all these people involved and he creates this flash mob of frustration and anger. It's really quite a scene that Luke records for us. Let me stop there for just a moment and just think about how this might apply to us. Because I think Luke is reminding us of this point. The way of Jesus dethrones all idols. And we can apply this to our lives in two different ways. The first is personal. And we've talked about this before. We all have our own little patron deities. As Paul says to the church at Rome, we're tempted to exchange the truth of who God is, His glory, His beauty, His fullness, His safety. We're we're tempted to exchange that for a lie. We find created things to worship, and for some of us, it's just ourselves. It's our work. It's our reputation. It's our success. For others of us, it's our leisure. It's what power we can yield or what pleasure we can come by. But you see, as the reality of Jesus, who He is and what He has done, as the reality of this Jesus manifests itself in our lives, these things no longer rule us. Love of self turns into love of others and a desire to serve others. 
Success, any success that we're given turns into an opportunity to give praise to God and to say to God be the glory alone. And money, money just turns into an opportunity to give and to be generous. See, Jesus came to dethrone our idols and to put them in their place. Jesus came to free you, you who feel entrapped and enslaved by the things that give lesser joy. And yet you're chasing them like they fill you. But you were made for more. And all that you were made for is found in Jesus. And so go to him. Run to him. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard this. You were made for Jesus. Run to him. But secondly, I think the focus here is not on any one individual, but it's on the collective lives that are being transformed, right? And no one individual, no one conversion is singled out. Because the gospel not only transforms people, individuals, but the gospel transforms structures. The gospel transforms societies. It is life-changing and it is world-changing. So Luke shows us that the gospel is restructuring ancient society and culture. And notice how it's doing it. It's not doing it by might. It's not doing it by political revolution or involvement. It's doing it through the dethroning of phony rivals to Jesus. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The way of Jesus dethrones all idols. That's the first truth. The second is this. The way of Jesus is the way of, sub- of subversion. The way of Jesus is the way of subversion. That's a big word. I'm going to get to it in a minute, kids. Just hang with me. See, like the Ephesians, we too, here in modern day America, we live in an age of religious pluralism. Ours is a so-called believe anything you want, age of tolerance. Just don't tell me that that is the truth. Just don't tell me that I need to believe that. And don't let what you believe affect how you live your life in the public sphere. Right? That's the world we live in. And into that context, we bring the good news of Jesus. The fullness of joy that is Jesus. But we also bring the exclusive demands of Jesus. We don't bring it by force and fear as radical Islam brings its message to the world. We don't bring it by blanket tolerance and blind inclusion as the rest of the secular world brings their message, but we bring it by faithful witness and presence to a message. We bring it by love. We bring it by reflecting the character of Jesus The way of Jesus is the way of subversion. A subversion 
means, if you look at it in the dictionary, it means to undermine the power and authority of an established system or institution. That's exactly what's happening in Ephesus. And that's exactly what needs to be happening in America. As truth is spoken, as love is lived out, the Gospel changes everything. Now getting back to our story, I realize I haven't explained the whole story. Getting back to our story, what a contrast Luke shows us here. I mean, this is an intense scene. As, as Demetrius' fiery rhetoric fuels this crowd, it fuels the anger of the crowd, the scene shifts from the, the silversmith's village to suddenly now we're in town. And we're in a theater. And this is not an AMC movie theater. right? Don't think AMC movie theater. Think more along the lines of CenturyLink Field. It was thought that the theater in Ephesus might hold as many as 25,000 people are now in a theater together. They're in a stadium together. And in this mob, many of them don't even know why they're there. They're just there because they're caught up in the commotion. But those who do know what's happening, they have, they've grabbed some Christians can't find Paul, but they're going to grab some Christians. So they grab Gaius and Aristarchus, these companions of Paul, these men who represent the center of the controversy. They grab these men, and boy, it looks like it's going to end badly. It looks like we're going to have another repeat of Stephen. The rocks are going to start flying, and the Christians are going to start dying. Paul himself is there, Luke tells us, but he's hanging out in the shadows, restrained by his friends, helpless to jump in the middle and help his companions. For two hours, this frenzied crowd cries, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Those must have been the longest two hours of Gaius' and Aristarchus' lives. Can you imagine just watching this crowd of thousands just get worked up into a frenzy? What's going to happen? And then suddenly the, the town clerk appears. And the town clerk was the liaison between the city and, and Rome. You think of him as kind of a mayor of sorts, although that's not what he was exactly. But for our purposes, think of him as a mayor. And, and he's able to, to calm this crowd down and speak to them. And he's a good politician. His, his words to them are, Relax. Relax. And he basically gives them three points. He says, one, folks, we know the truth. I mean, these guys, the way, what, the way of Jesus, whatever it's called, they can't touch us. We, we have Artemis. And we have the sign that Artemis gave us. We have the rock that fell from the sky. Now, what's the rock that fell from the sky? Well, Scholars think it was just a meteorite. It hit somewhere around the city, and 
These people who worshipped Artemis took that as a sign, a divine sign of her presence and of her favor. And so this sacred stone was merely a meteorite that had fallen through the atmosphere. But he says, we know the truth. Secondly, these guys are harmless. They aren't blasphemers of our goddess. We'll come back to that one. And number three, he says, we have courts to deal with this type of thing. A riot is only going to bring the wrath and the notice of Rome, and we don't want Rome in our city. We don't want them breathing down our necks. So everybody, just relax. They can't touch Artemis. They're not blasphemers. And we don't want Rome here. Now, I don't want you to miss the irony of the city clerk's speech. It's the only speech we have. We don't have a sermon of any sort. We have this speech. But, but notice the irony. Let me talk about each point. Number one, they don't have the truth, right? Artemis will die with this ancient city that holds her so dearly while the name of Jesus will press on for thousands of years. They have a rock that fell from the sky. We have a Jesus who rose from the dead. Secondly, Paul, Gaius, and Aristarchus and all the other followers of the way, they actually aren't harmless to the Ephesian way of life. They are a direct affront to the Ephesian way of life. It's almost as if the city clerk didn't know what they were. The city politician is trying to smooth the waters, but he directly contradicts exactly what's happening because the way of Jesus is the way of subversion. And number three, while these Christians are dragged into the theater as if they were the ones disrupting the city and disrupting the order, it's actually their accusers who have created this mob, who have created this riot. See, all his points are incredibly ironic. And the point is, the way of Jesus is not the way of assault, it's the way of subversion. It's not the perceived way of strength. No, the way of Jesus is the way of weakness. Our weapons are not political agendas or alliances with the power, powerful. They are truth and love and the power of God's Spirit and the power of God's Word. Paul will encourage the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, familiar verse to many of you, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It please God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then he'll write to them again in 2 Corinthians 10, and he'll say, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The way of Jesus is the way of subversion. That's why Paul urges the church in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, aspire to live quietly. And he told the Roman church in Romans 12.18 to live peaceably with all. And he told the church 
In 1 Peter 2, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, what's the point? Well, let me me say what I'm not saying. I am not saying, nor is the Bible saying, that we don't ever speak out in our culture or in our nation, that we don't ever speak out against evil. I'm not saying mind your own business by putting your head in the sand. Like Paul, we must be uncompromising in our proclamation of the truth of who Jesus is. Our faith is not merely a private matter. It's something that affects all of who we are. And therefore, it affects all of what we do. And therefore, it affects all kinds of spheres and all kinds of life. But I think what Luke is reminding us here is the reality that ordinary lives of faithfulness, loving Christ, and living for Christ in love and service, lives that disciple one another, Those kind of lives are building the church and are building us. And it's that kind of subversive action that is changing the world. Now we we should note that things for the church and things for the people of God don't always end like they did here. Our brothers and sisters in places like Iraq and Syria and Nigeria will testify to that fact. But the outcome here does remind us that all that we experience as a people, all that we experience as a church, is under the sovereign control and sovereign hands of God, who controls kings and authorities and mobs and theaters. He will protect for his glory He will take his protection off for his glory. But he is building his church. Some commentators believe that one of the reasons that Luke put Acts 19 and this story of Demetrius in the account of the early church is to provide a a precedent for the church years down the road that is facing persecution. To provide a precedent and an example that Jesus does not come to overturn the world, overturn order, overturn society. And indeed, He doesn't. But He does come to subversively change everything. A lot for us to think about. I want us to leave here simply challenged and encouraged by the pervasive and subversive power of the Gospel to dethrone personal idols, to dethrone societal idols, and to change our world for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for this account from Your servant Luke. And as we go from this place to serve You all around this city in small startups, at Boeing, at Microsoft, 
in our homes as we disciple our children and teach them, whatever our areas of calling might be, Lord, may we be those who live in Christ, who live in love, and who let the subversive power of the Gospel not only change our hearts and our allegiances, but change the allegiances of our world around us as well. Father, this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.